0: Last Lord's Day at uh, Sister Ella's baptism, we mentioned God's good providence, His kind providence, often in the life of a church, where you have something mentioned earlier, or a theme, or a thought, and it's picked up and it's it's uh, pronounced throughout the day. Well, such is the case today. We had an excellent message this morning in our Bible study by Pastor Tyler on the temptation of Christ from Matthew. And guess where we are in our study of Mark? We are at the temptation of Christ. So that is God's goodness to us. I ask you to open your Bibles, a copy of the Scriptures, to Mark chapter 1. This topic on the temptation of Jesus is indeed a well-known subject. And it is a very mysterious subject. It is recorded in all the synoptic Gospels, that be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew and Luke, they both mention the fact of the fast that Jesus had been on, and they both mention three specific temptations. You'll notice in Mark's account, neither of these uh, facts are mentioned. Mark's account is much, much briefer, as is usually the writing of Mark, but it's much briefer. And his, his recording of this is uh, much more concise. He doesn't mention a fast. He doesn't mention any specific temptations. But rather than being a distraction, I think Mark's brevity really focuses our mind on the, the temptation of Jesus himself. Um, It's not that those other things are unimportant. I'm not suggesting that. They are important. But Mark just goes right to the heart of the topic, as it were, and and deals with the temptation of Jesus Christ. And I suppose we could ask the question as we begin our thoughts today, much like we ask about the baptism of Jesus, why? Why is Jesus tempted? What is the purpose or purposes of his temptation? Why is Jesus driven into the wilderness to be tempted right after his baptism? And I think too often our approach to this subject, to the temptation of Jesus, it's too pedestrian. It's too we want to make it too practical. And in doing that we we miss, I think, the intriguing and theological depth that of what we have going on in the temptation of, of Jesus Christ. The Temptation of Jesus, as I said, is a mystery. William Hendrickson, writing about that temptation, said this quote: "That even Jesus, the sinless one, could be tempted, is a mystery incapable of being made perfectly clear." The psychological process Hendricks writes involved must have been different than that with you and me as human beings when we are when we are tempted. Man, Hendrickson writes, is enticed by his own evil desires, but Jesus has no evil desires. Excuse me, in Romans seven fifteen, we read about a conflict that. You and I are very familiar with, I'm quite certain, where the Apostle Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions. Have you have you found yourself there? I know you have. You do something, you go, Why? Why did I do this? Why did I say that? Why did I act or react in that way? Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not what I want. I'm doing things I don't really want to do. But I do the very thing I hate. And Paul's in conflict with that. I'm doing things I don't even want to do. And then he says in verse 17 of Romans 7 So now it is no longer I who do it. Now he's not saying that he has no fault. But he's pointing out the root problem here. He says, It is no longer I that do it, but sin. Sin that dwells in me. I am a sinner by my very nature, my essence. And so I find that conflict. Well, there can be no such conflict in Jesus. I have dual desires, you have dual desires. We have the desires of the flesh. And we have the desires of the Spirit. Did Jesus have dual desires? I think not. Jesus didn't have that conflict because sin does not and did not dwell in him as it dwells in me. He is born perfect. I am not. I am a sinner by nature. Jesus Christ was not a sinner by nature. I am a sinner by choice. And certainly Jesus withstood the temptation. More than one, obviously. But He he withstood the temptation of sin. And you think about that, and I want to go on and get to our text here and read it, but you think about, just for a moment, think about, you've you've heard the adage, power corrupts. But absolute power absolutely corrupts. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And yet, his desire is not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Legan Duncan writes, we know that our Lord was impeccable. And you know what that word means. It means without (laughs) fault, without any flaw, without any spot or wrinkle. Jesus is impeccable. He was morally incapable of sin. He was wholly given over to His Father. How could a person like this be tempted? I don't know. But the Scriptures tell me that He was tempted, and in that temptation, there is a world of comfort for you and for me. End quote. So, like Moses, let's take off our shoes, and let's draw near this passage now in prayerful humility. As we begin to consider the temptation of Jesus. I read in our hearing now from Mark chapter 1. I think I'll begin with verse 9 and read down through verse 13. Please follow in your Bibles as I read this passage. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth, the Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. May God bless the reading of his word and let his people say, let's pray together. Holy Father, I do pray for your opening of our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to the words that we have read concerning the temptation of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to approach the passage with great humility, confessing our lack of ability to totally sound the depths of what is here. And yet, Lord, as those that are eager to read and understand Your Word and have our souls nurtured and fed by the very truths of Your Word. Lord, please, I pray, grant us as we look into this understanding and wisdom discretion, and make Christ very real in our eyes, mind, and our uh, our minds, and our hearts. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, the temptation of Jesus is foundational to redemption. What do you mean by that? Well, even as we heard earlier in Bible study, as I read this text in your hearing and we begin to think about the temptation of Jesus Christ, I hope the first thought, one of the fir- at least one of the first thoughts that comes into your mind is Adam's temptation. There is a biblical doctrine of two Adams that are critical as you begin to consider this passage and this temptation. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, we read, Thus it is written, The first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, and he's speaking about Jesus, and he's called the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Then in the book of Romans, chapter 5, we read this in verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So I have in Corinthians, Jesus is called the last Adam. And in Romans, I have a reference to the first Adam being a type of Jesus Christ who is to come. Thus we have the biblical doctrine of two Adams. The first Adam and the last Adam. Now why is Jesus called the last Adam? Why is the first Adam a type of Jesus who is to come? Well the answer is plain. The first Adam is the biological and federal head of humanity. From Him all humanity comes. That's what I mean by biological head. He is also the federal head. He is the representative of all of humanity. From Him all humanity springs. And by Him and through Him sin and death has come into the world. And has passed upon all humanity. Because He is the, uh, humanity's federal head. He represents you and me, in the Garden of Eden. So the first Adam is God's chosen representative of the human race. The last Adam, Jesus, is the spiritual head, not the biological head, but He is the spiritual head and the federal head of His people. From Him, all spiritual life springs. From Him all the saved descend, if you please. By Him sin and death are conquered. The last Adam is God's chosen representative of His people. First Adam, biological federal head. Last Adam, spiritual federal head. First, he- first Adam, sin comes. Last Adam, life comes. He represents his people. The first Adam represents his people. Now the analogy of the two Adams are central in redemption. I dare say one could really fully understand redemption without understanding the biblical doctrine of the two Adams. The analogy of the two Adams are central in redemption by the first Adam Sin is introduced into the world and all his seed are infected by sin. And that is, we are sinners and also we have the penalty of death on us because of sin. By the last Adam, sin is conquered and all his seed are justified or cleansed or redeemed from their sin. Now, there are three transactions that occur in in redemption. Three transactions that occur in redemption. Think about this for a moment. The first transaction is the guilt and curse of the first Adam that is reckoned to all his posterity. That's all of humanity. Let me repeat that. The guilt and curse of the first Adam's sin are reckoned... To all his posterity. So I read again in Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world. How? Through one man. And death passes upon all through one man. That's the first transaction. The second transaction is the guilt and curse of the first Adam's... uh, the first Adam's seed, the guilt and curse that you and I have, are accounted to the last Adam. The guilt and curse of the first Adam's seed, that's us, is accounted to the last Adam. Again, let me read you a passage. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. First Adam's transgression is accounted to all his seed. First Adam's transgression is accounted to Jesus Christ. Third transaction. The righteousness of the last Adam is reckoned to all his people. The free gift following many trespasses, Romans 5.16, brought justification. We are justified by the last Adam. Now, as we go to this passage and we begin to try to unpack some of what we've read here, I want you to please keep in mind the two Adams as we consider the temptation of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the passage. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The word drove here is a strong verb. It's the same verb that will be used in Mark 1, verse 34, verse 39, verse 43. When Jesus expels demons from people who are possessed, He will drive them out. He will cast them out. That's the impact of that verb that we're looking at here, where the Spirit drove Him out. Except we understand when it comes to Jesus, He doesn't need to be coerced as the demons were that possessed the people that Jesus will cast out. Jesus doesn't need to be coerced to go into the wilderness. No. He has come and He says, I've, I've come to do the will of My Father. It's a strong verb, but there's no coercion. The Father isn't twisting the Son's arm and saying, go to the wilderness. No, He is doing this willingly. Cranford, Cranfield, excuse me, Theologian that wrote on the Book of Mark writes: Whereas other men must avoid temptation in so far as they can, and if you ever and you're talking with a person and let's say they've had some addictive behavior, and they're they're you're trying to help them through this sin and recovery, and one of the things you'll tell them is break your old patterns. Don't keep uh, your same friends. Don't keep to the same habits in your life, but but change your way. Move away from temptation. Don't place yourself in the road of temptation. And Cranfield is writing whereas other men, you and me, we must avoid temptation in so far as we can. This man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, must voluntarily seek it out and take the offensive. So, no, he's not being coerced to go, but it is a strong verb. That is being used here. Jesus was filled with an irresistible desire, if you please. Immediately upon being baptized to go into the wilderness to face Satan. In other words, the temptation of Jesus is not incidental. It's not just a sidebar. It's not accidental. He didn't just stumble into it. It's not some unfortunate event that happened in his life. No, it's none of those things, but it is, and it's not the result of some failure on his part, but rather his temptation is divinely directed. Now, there's a section, by the way, in our confession in chapter 18, verse uh, paragraph 4, um, which is, I think, page 680 in the Trinity hymnal, but it talks, and it's talking about assurance of the saints. Let me, let me just turn there real quick. I want to read this, this for you. This is sort of a sidebar. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers ways shaken, many ways shaken. They may have it shaken. They may have it diminished, uh, intermitted. There, there's pauses in it. You hit the pause button as it were and your assurance sometimes it's like, ah. As by and this is the causes it gives, as by negligence in in preserving it. Sometimes when I don't pay attention to the means of grace that was uh, exhorted that we pay attention to earlier in this service, well, down the tubes also can go my assurance of salvation when I am ignoring the well-being of my soul. So, sometimes it happens by negligence in uh, preserving of it. Sometimes by falling into special sin which wounds the conscience. Here we think of David where he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation in Psalm 51 because of this being overcome by some great temptation and falling in sin. He no longer has any sense that he is one of gods. That can happen. The confession goes on to say, um, By some sudden or vehement temptation. I don't know, we can think maybe of Elijah when he sits down under the juniper tree. But sometimes uh, there's a sudden temptation that comes upon a person and the result of that is we're shaken in our very core as to our belonging to God. And then the last one, and this is what I come here for, by God withdrawing the light of His countenance and suffering even such as fear Him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Sometimes there's just no, oh well, you've done this, so do this to No, that equation doesn't always work. Sometimes out of God's own providence and His own purpose and means, simply as it were, leaves you alone for a while. And it doesn't take but about a nanosecond to start crying out to God. Jesus going into the wilderness is not an accident. It's not a side issue. It's not a result of something that He uh, slipped up and did. No. It's divinely decreed. And he is carried there by the Spirit immediately after his baptism. Now, Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, says, "Without a moment to catch his breath, as it were, Jesus is thrust into the fray. Into the fray. It's immediately." Upon being baptized, there's no lunch, there's no family gathering, there's no shaking of hands, there's none of that. But he comes up out of the water from being baptized, and immediately he goes into the wilderness. He's driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Edwards also notes, and I do find this interesting, I will not take the time to to develop it, but in Leviticus 16.21 we have, and he says this is reminiscent of the language of the scapegoat. And if you recall that where the, the priest lays his hands on the scapegoat's head and he's laying the sins of Israel upon them, but we're also told there's a man at the ready who's standing there ready and immediately upon the, upon the priest finishing his job, that scapegoat, scapegoat is hustled out into the wilderness by the person who's standing there to take him out. So he doesn't the scapegoat doesn't just hang around After this is done, no, He immediately is carried out of the camp into the wilderness. So, I agree with Edwards. There is some language here that's reminiscent of that. But the point being, after Jesus has been endued with the Spirit, He has been exalted by the Father immediately. He's carried out into the wilderness for temptation. Why? 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 Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, this is verses 18 and 19 of Luke 4, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering the of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For liberty, for those that are being held captive, for those that are blinded by the wicked one, (laughs) or slaves of sin, Jesus must confront and he must conquer the one who binds and blinds people. And that is Satan. John emphatically says, 1 John 5, 19, The whole world lies. The whole world exists in the power of the evil one. That's the way he described it. John also emphatically says in 1 John 3, 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has a work. And He immediately engages in that work upon being endued with power from the Holy Spirit and by being exalted by the Father, immediately He engages in that work. He is sent forth to confront Satan verse 13 the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness verse 12 and he was in the wilderness 40 days now the number 40 as you know is 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 the oft-repeated number in the in the Bible the number 40 is often associated with testing Israel was 40 years wandering in the wilderness Moses, before God called and sent him to Egypt, was 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. The spies spent 40 days spying out the land and apparently being scared and failing the test, all but uh, Caleb and Joshua because there's giants here. It's a big land. It's a great land, but uh, I don't think we can have it. Because giants lived there. The flood, Noah and the flood, the rain fell 40 days and 40 nights on the earth without any uh, stopping. Moses, when he receives the law from God on Mount Sinai, spends 40 days without food or water before receiving the Law from the Lord. Elijah is strengthened and he goes 40 days on the strength of uh, angel food that he's given. And he goes then 40 days in the strength of that. 40, 40, 40, 40. So we come to this passage we have that Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. Being tempted by Satan. Satan. Now, is Jesus tempted all 40 days? I rather think yes. I rather think so. Kent Hughes writes that during this 40 days, Jesus also repeatedly repulsed the attacks of Satan. Finally, in a weakened state, he faced the devil's greatest attack. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke for just a moment. Luke chapter 4. Notice, noticing verses 1 and 2, and also verse 13. Luke 4, 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. Now, the language there, can, it can read either way. It can mean that He was there forty days then He was tempted. Or it can also read that He's 40 days, and during those 40 days, he's being tempted. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And then we go down to verse 13. And sometimes I think people think, ah, Jesus was tempted. He had these three big temptations. He withstood this. Game over. He won. But look what Luke says. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Do you don't think that Jesus had any other temptation? Of course He did. Of course He did. I think of Him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it be possible, take this cup from me. But not as I will. As you will. And He's praying so fervently that his sweat pops on him and it's like great drops of blood flowing down him. That's a lot of tension or stress or I don't know how you want to define it, but that's, that's, a, that's a lot of emotion going into that. He is there, and back to Mark, he is in the wilderness. It's in the right place again. He is in the wilderness, 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he is with the wild uh, wild animals, and the angels are ministering to him. In Kittel's Theological Dictionary, he defines wilderness thus, It can signify a lonely place where there are no men, where the demoniac wanders, And where there are many dangers to the body and also to the soul. And the wilderness also can be a place of refuge that one goes for solitude. To spend time in prayer with God. Although Jesus did often, it seems, go to the wilderness, to the desert for solitude, for prayer. That's not why he's going there now. He's going there now to confront Satan. He is driven by the Holy Spirit immediately to face Satan. And Mark reminds his readers that he's there with the wild animals. And Mark's reminding his Roman readers that will be ravaged by beasts under Nero, who already are at this point, that Christ too was thrown to the wild beast. And angels ministered to him. And you take courage. Uh, sometimes we talk about what's called dying grace. Grace that you don't have now, but you have at that moment when you need it. That you're ministered to. So Roman readers that are being under Nero, torn by a beast and used as torches and all kinds of awful things. Take heart. God will not forsake you. Sinclair Ferguson writes that He, Jesus, now we move back to our thought of the two Adams, but He, Jesus, came to undo what Adam had done by his sin and fall. But if He was to reverse what Adam had done, He needed to enter the world, not as Adam had found it, but as Adam had left it. So when he was tempted, the last Adam, when he was tempted, he was not in a garden like the first Adam. He was not surrounded by animals over which he exercised dominion. He is in a desert surrounded by wild beasts from the effect of the fall. This, I think, is the implication again of the wild beast. So now let's come. I think we've somewhat looked at the the verses and tried to give the sense of them in this grammatical historical way. Let's think about them for just a moment as it comes to matters of application. As was pointed out earlier today, And I would lend my amen and and add these these similar comments. The topic of the temptation of Jesus is too often preached as a how-to sermon. How can you overcome temptation? Jesus was tempted, but He overcame the temptation by skillfully employing the Word of God. And every time Satan put one of those three temptations in front of Christ, Christ, skillfully using the sword of the Spirit, defended and pushed away the temptation by responding to it with, thus it is written. And that's the way he handled temptation. Go you and do likewise. When you're tempted, draw that sword of the Spirit and fight it off, and let your answer be thus saith the Lord, well that's good counsel I'm, It's not bad counsel'm not saying don't do that, yes, do that, but I don't think that's the warp and woof of this passage, not at all. If we, limit, if we limit this passage, this topic of the temptation of Jesus, if we, li- if we limit it to a how-to sermon, we've really not preached the gospel. And we divest this account of its redemptive implications. And we fail to see the majesty and power of the conquering king. Jesus did not come to show us how to win a fight against temptation. That is not the reason or purpose of His incarnation. Let me give you an example. Let me show you how you are to do this. No, Jesus came to do that which you and I can never do Of our own accord. We fail. I find in me a law. That when I would do good. Evil is present with me. And sometimes I ask myself. What are you doing? And the answer to that is. I am doing. According to my Adamic nature. In the first Adam. I am a sinner. And I am sinning. And I don't need a lesson. On how to do better. I need a Savior that will save me from my sins. And that, I think my brothers and sisters, is the point of the narration of the temptation of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do that which I can never do. He came and He conquered Satan and He saves His people from their sins. Thomas Manton, a Puritan, preached some seven sermons uh, on the topic of the temptation of Jesus. But Thomas Manton writes, that Christ alone grappled with Satan, having no fellow worker with Him, that we may know the strength of our Redeemer. Did you get that? I want to read it again. Christ grappled with Satan. And He did it alone. He has no Eve. He has no friendly garden. He has no animals that are nice. He has no tree of uh, uh, the fruit of the gardens to eat from. Christ is alone. And Manton says that He overcomes that you may see the strength. The strength. What kind of strength does it take to save a sinner, and all of us were hardened sinners. When We talk about hardened sinners. That's a little bit of a redundancy, isn't it? I've never met a sinner that's not hardened. Yes. Talk about unconverted, non-repentant sinner. They're hard. They will not listen. Their minds are shut. Their hearts are like brass. Their wills—well, <laughs> their will is corrupted. What does it take to break up that and make it fallow ground? It takes a sovereign God. It takes a powerful Savior. Thomas Manton, That Christ alone grappled with Satan, having no fellow worker with him, that we may know the strength of our Redeemer, who is able himself to overcome the tempter without any assistance, and to save to the uttermost. All that come unto God by him hebrews seven twenty five he is able to save completely to the uttermost. man goes on, the devil often abuse abuses our solitude. It is good sometimes to be alone, but then we need to be uh, stocked with holy thoughts or employed in holy exercises that we may be able to say as Christ, I am not alone." John uh, 16, 32, I am not alone because the Father is with me. Howsoever, a state of retirement from human converse, if it be not necessary, exposes us to temptation. In other words, believer, (laughs) don't think you are a Samson in the faith. Because like Samson, you're going to find out if you think you are one, You're going to find out one day, you're going to wake up and say, I'm going to shake myself. And you're going to find out the Spirit of God has departed from you and you didn't even know it. Yes, Christians need Christians. And we need first and foremost union with Christ. But he goes on to say, no place, this is Manton, no place is privileged from temptations unless we leave our hearts behind us. And that's kind of impossible to do. Do you think you're immune from temptation right now because you're in the house of God in sacred worship? No, you don't. I know you don't think that. You got a big target. That used to be one of my favorite Far Side cartoons that showed the deer standing there had a big bullseye on his chest and the other deer standing there by him goes, "That's that's a bummer of a birthmark. And so, you know, we've got this birthmark right here. Born again, child of God. And here come the fiery darts. And so Manton writes, No place is privileged from temptation. Nowhere. David, walking on the terrace or housetop, was ensnared by Bathsheba's beauty. He wasn't out looking for it. Just happened to happen in the course of his day. Lot was chastened, and, or chaste, excuse me, was chaste, he was pure in Sodom, yet committed incest in the mountain where there were none but his own family. And then this statement When we are locked in our closets, prayer closet, we cannot shut out Satan. Because I'm there (laughs) and my heart's wicked and I have sin in my members. And so, even there, my mind and my heart go to sinful thoughts. Yes, I need more than an example, I need a mighty Savior. I need a champion. I need the last Adam. And that's what we see when we come to this passage. Jesus came to save. Yes, we do learn from Jesus. Yes, we do learn about how to walk, how to do, do this right, follow Jesus. All that's fine and good and dandy, but that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not do better. The Gospel is not, try harder. Here, take this formula and employ this formula in your life and the next time you're tempted, you just plug this formula in and you're alright. That's not the Gospel. That's moralism. And we don't want to preach moralism. Because moralism is deadly. Because people think, I got it. I'm alright. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're all right. You're standing on a half inch thick ice with an abyss below you. You're all right. The gospel is not what I can do, the gospel is what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, our Lord. Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is just beginning. Oh no. Her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. So when considering the temptation of Jesus, do not reduce it to how can I overcome temptation but rather see Jesus the last Adam that defeats Satan that withstands his assault and establishes his kingdom the first Adam failed but the last Adam did not the first Adam sinned he brought sin and its result upon all of his people all his posterity The last Adam overcame temptation. Satan and sin and death and the grave. And he secured salvation for his people. Yes, you and I face wilderness times. That's true. And those times often come, strangely enough, on the heels of some spiritual mountaintop christ goes from baptism from being endued with the spirit to being exalted by the father to the wilderness sometimes our wilderness trials come as it were we have been in the presence of god and we felt our spirit soar and we walk out and the weight falls on our back wham and it often happens that way doesn't it strangely Yes, in those seasons, yes, resist, persevere, yes, pray, yes, use God's word, yes, do those things. But more than that, look to Christ. I suppose some of the greatest trial and temptation that most of us will face yet lies ahead of us in the chilly waters of Jordan. And when I get to that point, I don't want a how-to. As we sang, give me Jesus. That's what I need. I need the last Adam who stood, withstood the temptation, and he did it victoriously. He confronts the enemy right off and makes a pretty plain statement of who he is and what he's about. Yes, give me Jesus. Don't give me a formula. The answer when we move from those heights to those depths is not do better, tighten up your belt, pick yourself up. That's not the answer. The answer is not try this, do that. The answer is look to Christ, who is our answer, our rock, our assurance. It's in a person. It's not in a formula. It's in the person, Jesus Christ, the last Adam. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let's pray together. Holy Father, for... Our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, we give You thanks. For Lord, we are of our own impotent, we're lost, we're unable. But we know what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so Lord, we look to You, we give You thanks, we exalt our Savior. We praise His holy and blessed name. And may we find ourselves in Him, in union with Him, close to Him. For He is the vine and we are the branches. And without Him we can do nothing. Lord, encourage Your people. May they see Christ exalted. And may they live their lives accordingly. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.